I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Fewer people are convinced by the story each day as they begin to see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. The time for allowing them to make us feel like strangers in our own country is over. We are Americans. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. It's Friday. January 21st, 2022, the 366th day of dystopia. Let's kick things off with a piece from David Harsanyi in Real Clear Politics. Biden is not alone. Democrats have been delegitimizing elections for years. President Joe Biden joined Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and numerous other Democrats this week in a partisan attempt to preemptively delegitimize the 2022 election. Twice, the president was asked by reporters whether voters could trust the electoral system, and twice the president contended that a fair election was unlikely unless the Senate was blown up and the Democrats' election power grab was passed, a maneuver that poses a far more serious and lasting threat to the constitutional order than anything Donald Trump is cooking up right now. And of course, Trump isn't cooking up anything to delegitimize the election, but we'll move forward. I think it would easily be illegitimate, said Biden. The increase in the prospect of being illegitimate is in proportion to not being able to get these reforms passed. Vice President Kamala Harris, sent out on the morning shows Thursday, offered basically the same position. And let's just pause for a second to consider how silly the position that's coming out of the White House is right now. Okay, a bunch of election rules and processes were changed in 2020, illegitimately, by the way, not by state legislatures, but by executive branch officials, courts, and bureaucrats in these states. And that happened across all of the swing states. It was intentional lawlessness and lawbreaking. And they excused it all because they said it was for COVID. We needed these new rules because people needed to be able to vote in the middle of the very deadly pandemic. And now, as the COVID narrative continues to collapse, it's pretty clear that we don't need special rules about how elections are run based on the presence of the very deadly virus. No matter how desperately they're trying to convince everyone that there is still some health emergency, they've actually come out and said there's now a stealth Omicron. And what makes it so stealth and therefore so dangerous is that it doesn't show up on the PCR tests. So not that the PCR tests worked to begin with, and even the CDC has admitted that they can't distinguish COVID from the flu, but now We have a very scary variant that doesn't show up on the test at all, but you still have it. You still have it. Can't be tested for it. Can't find out if you actually do have it, but you still have it. Oh, no, it's not just a cold. It's stealth Omicron. So there's not going to be any need for special rules in the November 2022 elections or any of the primaries preceding that. But the Democrat effort on voting rights is designed to keep all of those special rules in place now, because if you don't leave them in place, you're racist. So it's not about COVID anymore. Now it's just about you being racist. And they're saying without these rules that never existed before 2020 and don't legally exist now, the election will be illegitimate. But they don't just want the system that was available in 2020. They want even more. They want universal mail-in balloting without the ballot being requested. 
all over the country. They want countrywide ballot harvesting. They want to eliminate voter ID. They want to eliminate signature checks on mail-in ballots. And they're saying if they can't get that, if they can't get all of that, then the elections will be illegitimate, which implies that the election in 2020 was illegitimate because these rules didn't exist then. This is just a logical disaster. It makes no sense. Back to the article. For people lamenting the big lie, this is nothing new. Trump's election fraud conspiracy theories have been endlessly documented. Sometimes it sounds as if he has merely appropriated the language of Democrats who've been playing this ugly game for years. And it's not only the post-election evidence-free Stacey Abrams-style sore loserism that we're typically subjected to. It's far more pervasive. During Trump's first impeachment, headier times, when we were still pretending to care about the fate of Ukraine rather than inviting Vladimir Putin to take a slice, Democrats argued that ousting Trump was a precondition to a fair election. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi warned colleagues that maintaining the position that elections should decide Trump's fate was dangerous and, quote, only adds to the urgency of our action because the president is jeopardizing the integrity of the 2020 elections, end quote. Adam Schiff, one of the leading culprits in the Russian collusion swindle, concurred, quote, the president's misconduct cannot be decided at the ballot box, for we cannot be assured that the vote will be fairly won. And just a note about that paragraph, Harsanyi is obviously repeating the military industrial complex slogans about Ukraine and Russia right now, which is absolutely unsurprising for an establishment Republican. Never once, incidentally, have any of these people offered a scintilla of evidence demonstrating that a single person's vote was changed, altered, or appropriated by Trump or Russians or anyone else. Yet at one point, a healthy majority of Democrats claimed to believe that Putin had altered vote tallies. How many Democrats still believe it? These days, it's difficult to recount the slew of bizarre Russia hysterics and various other fantastical stories taken up by Democrats and their allies in pursuit of undermining trust in the 2016 election and the 2020 contest just in case. Remember those insane politicians chaining themselves to mailboxes as if they were holdouts at Masada? Democrats spread pictures of locked mailboxes in places such as Burbank, California, a hotbed of contemporary white supremacism, no doubt, that were actually meant to stop criminality not voting. Pelosi called back the House for an emergency session to deal with the crisis of operational changes made, quote, slowing the mail and jeopardizing the integrity of the election, end quote. These turned out to be routine cost-cutting reforms, which Pelosi knew well. It was another effort to corrode trust in 2020 and advocate the anarchic COVID-era voting regimes that Democrats now want to normalize in every state. Needless to say, political journalists did not stalk every elected Democrat, demanding their solemn attestation to the sanctity of the 2016 presidential election, lest they be expelled from society as apostates of democracy. Far from it. Hillary Clinton claimed that Trump was an illegitimate president on numerous occasions, later advising Biden not to concede under any circumstances in a close race. And when Democrats were gaming out a potential 2020 loss, a scenario that did not, quote, look that different from 2016, end quote, with a, quote, big popular win for Mr. Biden and a narrow electoral defeat, end quote, in other words, a legitimate Trump victory. Leading Democratic Party strategist John Podesta, playing the role of Biden, refused to concede the race. Instead, he alleged voter suppression and then persuaded Democrat governors of Trump won states to send pro-Biden electors to the Electoral College and try to steal the election. In another scenario, a Democratic House unilaterally named Joe Biden president. Horrifying, right? And despite a few clueless and absurd statements in that article. It's good to remember what the Democrats actually did and actually said over the last five or six years about the legitimacy of elections. And he's talking in that last part about the transition integrity project, which you can look up online and read. I've posted a lot about it in the info stream. It is probably up completely somewhere in the info stream. You can just go there, t.me slash I'm your moderator, use the search feature and look up Transition Integrity Project. 
But the Transition Integrity Project was a series of war game scenarios on how the Democrat establishment and, of course, the Uniparty Global Communist establishment would react in a different series of events that could take place on Election Day. And as Harsanyi notes, they had discussed sending Democrat electors even in states that Trump legitimately won. You'll recall the fake president was just out there two days ago talking about how horrifying it was that states that had obvious and overwhelming evidence of election fraud might send alternate electors. If you remember in Michigan, they had the state house barred so that the alternate electors could not even show up to participate in the process of Michigan certifying its electors. So we're going to spend a little time on election fraud today. This morning on War Room, Boris Epstein broke the news of an expanded canvas in Pima County, Arizona. They knocked on 750 doors. Someone answered at 350 of those. And the canvas found a 38% fault rate. Okay, which means that so in the canvassing process, they go to a house, they clarify the person's name, they ask how many people live at the house, at that location, at that address, and they inquire about whether or not the other people who are registered at that address or who voted from that address actually live there. And if they find that the results are in conflict with the actual number of people, the actual number of voters at that address, then that's the fault, okay? So 38% of those 350 addresses, it turned out that the registration records and voting records did not match the reality. And they don't ask how people voted. They don't ask for personal information. They're working on publicly available data And they just want to verify that real voters are actually the ones casting the ballots in the elections. And it turns out that quite often they are not. And they had done some of this canvassing and had a report on it in December, and they found crazy results. For instance, at one house, it was a frat house. They had 27 voters which wouldn't be weird except for the average age of those 27 voters was 45. In another instance, they found that 40 voters had their address listed as the Customs and Border Patrol office. And we know around the country in the canvassing efforts that have been ongoing, we have numerous voters registered at an empty lot or a commercial building. All of these registrations are invalid. But nonetheless, they end up casting mail-in ballots in these states. Now, let's go to the Gateway Pundit. I don't often read articles on here from the Gateway Pundit because a lot of what they do is repost like the shortened version of other information. And I prefer always to go as close to the source material as I can when I can. But sometimes the Gateway Pundit really knocks it out of the park with original reporting. And they did... Yesterday and today, they have a two-part series going now on an organization called ERIC. This is the headline from yesterday. Who's cleaning our voter rolls? Soros founded and funded ERIC is now used in 31 states. For decades, the Democrats and leftists have fought ferociously to prevent the cleanup of state voter registration rolls. Recognizing a potential niche, left-wing activists created ERIC to clean voter rolls their way using their rules. So in 2012, the Electronic Registration Information Center, that's ERIC, was formed as a membership organization primarily for blue states. ERIC is essentially a left-wing voter registration drive disguised as a voter roll cleanup, but it's been gaining traction in red states too. Originally funded by the Soros Open Society, it is now responsible for cleaning the voter rolls in 31 states plus D.C. A top election official from each member state is appointed a seat on the ERIC board or as an officer, all unpaid positions. 
Eric located 17 million new voters for the 2020 election, the most in the history of the organization. For comparison, they've only found 5.7 million in 2012, Obama's reelection. The Eric database is comprehensive and would be one of the most coveted by bad actors looking to influence an election. Member states must not only submit all details on an active and active voters to Eric every 60 days, but they must also provide every individual in their state's motor vehicle department database, both licensed and ID recipients. This combo of data is breathtaking. It's everyone who could generate a legal ballot. It includes those approaching voting age, even those here illegally, yet issued an ID by their left-leaning state. This data includes names, addresses, date of birth, license number, last four of social, voter activity, phone, email, title, and type of citizenship documentation, and much more. Eric doesn't just manage lists, they demand action. But it's not the action you would expect, like cleaning voter rolls. Eric provides each member state a targeted list of people that are not registered to vote. The membership bylaws require the state to contact at least 95% of these people within 90 days, soliciting them to register. Eric also wants specific registration profiles updated and requires the state to contact these voters within 90 days, too. It's essentially a left-wing voter registration drive, all paid for by the states, not the Democrat Party. The membership fee is $25,000, but costs can run into the millions to fund the activities and membership dues. Oddly, Eric has no requirement or mandate that member states clean up their voter rolls. States are only strongly encouraged to request Eric's voter updates at least once a year. If a member fails to make a request in 425 days, the data will be sent automatically. What's even more odd and seemingly corrupt is that Eric does not want to know who is voting illegally. Their rules explain that, quote, under no circumstances shall the members transmit any record indicating an individual is a non-citizen of the United States. End quote. If Eric hears no evil, then they see no evil. Eric uses advanced technology, including artificial intelligence from Sensing. This data matching AI compares information collected by member states with U.S. Postal Service address data and Social Security death records. But no one knows how else this data collected from the 31 states is being used. J. Christian Adams recently discussed Eric in a Breitbart podcast interview. Adams says, quote, that's part of the smokescreen. Eric learns who gets registered from their program, so they're able to micro target with whoever is partnered with Eric. We don't know who they're interfacing all this data with. It could be Catalyst, the massive Democrat database organization. We just don't know. I've talked to some Eric board members who are secretary of states. They don't even know what Eric is doing. They've asked questions and can't get answers. Eric demands additional data, like the total number of provisional ballots cast. They want totals of provisional ballots counted, provisionals uncounted, and why. They want to know who registered or updated their data, then voted that same day. They require data on those who registered using paper and those using electronic methods. They also want a list of all individuals in other agencies that perform voter registration functions. This includes the staff in public libraries, Department of Public Safety, Unemployment, Department of Health, Social Services, and so on. Member states are currently using ERIC to hide their list maintenance data, citing it violates their ERIC contracts, even though federal law mandates it be made public. The 1993 NVRA motor voter law includes a public disclosure provision, which allows the public inspection of voter list maintenance records. The Public Interest Legal Foundation with J. Christian Adams recently sued the District of Columbia for this exact reason. They expect to sue other states as well. Those leading election audits should demand voter list maintenance records by citing the federal law and not use the weaker FOIA requests for maintenance records. Eric was funded by an anonymous donor and the Pew Center on the states. This grant was provided by the George Soros Open Society Foundation. David Becker, an experienced Democrat election lawyer, left the Justice Department to create the Eric architecture. Originally a blue state project, Eric had 11 member states by 2014 and 22 by 2017. Eric has not published an annual report since 2017, almost five years ago. 
Becker, who still has a seat on the Eric board, went on to create the Center for Election Innovation and Research in 2016. He distributed $69.5 million in grants from Zuckerberg for the 2020 election using similar methods as the Center for Tech and Civic Life. J. Christian Adams explains, quote, The history of Eric is important. Kansas State Crosscheck was a group of states doing this for free. This caused leftists to go wild. They sued cross-check participant states, particularly Indiana, and got court orders to basically shut down cross-check. There's no longer a competitor to Eric. Once this happened, red states started joining Eric, like Georgia, Florida, and Texas. This is what really opened the floodgates to Eric's power. If a state like Georgia wants to know who's registered in both Louisiana and Georgia, there's no one else. Mr. Adams also says, One thing we do know is Eric is hiding the facts about how states are making these decisions. It's a system breakdown. It's a leveraging of power of who writes the rules. It's not just outright cheating. It's way more sophisticated involving who has power, who can see records, who gets to vote, and who are the observers. It's a comprehensive suite manipulating the process. And it's not always cheating. Sometimes it's totally legal what they do. In 2016, leaked funding documents showed Soros money, partnered with the Rockefeller Family Fund, was used to push changes to voter registration policies at the national level. Soros also gave money to Pew Center on the states for voter list maintenance practices favorable to Soros at the state level. Soros also funded the Brennan Center for Justice and the Advancement Project. These two groups became the loudest voices in, ex in opposing election integrity and stopping any effort that would ensure only U.S. citizens vote. And we'll move to part two. This is from today. The Eric database looks to be as corrupt as we feared. Over the past four years, the largest U.S. counties have removed zero ineligible voters from their voter rolls. States are required by federal law to report to Congress how many ineligible voters they removed from their voter rolls. These are the registrations of voters who fail to respond to an address confirmation request and fail to vote in two consecutive elections. The outstanding team at Judicial Watch recently investigated this data and found some astonishing revelations. Over the recent four-year reporting period, large counties in powerful states like New York and California reported they removed zero, one, or only two eligible voters from their voter rolls over those four years. Robert Popper, Judicial Watch's director of voting integrity efforts, said about 10% of Americans move every year. Those counties should generate hundreds of thousands of canceled registrations. There's simply no way to comply with federal law while removing so few outdated registrations. And they list some of the four year reported totals of ineligible voters removed from the rolls. OK, Manhattan, 1.2 million registered voters removed only two ineligible voters. Sacramento County, over a million registered voters. They removed zero. Brooklyn, 1.7 million registered voters, removed zero. San Bernardino County, which is east of Los Angeles, 1.2 million registered voters, removed 14. Queens, 1.3 million, removed zero. Fresno, over 500,000 registered voters, removed two. The Bronx, 860,000 registered voters, removed one. Staten Island, 344,000 voters, removed zero. Contra Costa County in California, 700,000 registered voters removed one. 282,000 registered voters in Stanislaus County, California, they removed two. Solano County, California, 262,000, they removed four. Richmond County, New York, 347,000 voters, zero removed. New York County, 1.26 million registered, removed two. And Nassau County, 1.1 million removed zero. Judicial Watch sent warning letters to election officials in several states pointing out these impossibly low numbers. They gave each state 90 days to correct these records or Judicial Watch will commence a federal lawsuit. And this was from November 15th of last year. So in three weeks, they are arriving at that 90 day deadline. A while back, they uncovered 1.6 million inactive voters in Los Angeles County and through a 2019 settlement agreement forced L.A. to clean up its act. After Judicial Watch sued Pennsylvania, the state admitted to reporting incorrect information to a federal agency. But the new PA figures are also too low. 
Pennsylvania now admits 18 counties removed a combined total of only 15 eligible voters in two years. And they have a similar list of the results from different states. New York has 16 counties that reported removing zero voter registrations. Oregon has 14 that removed five or fewer. Arkansas has 11 that removed five or fewer. And Illinois has 16 counties that reported removing zero voter registrations. The National Voter Registration Act requires states to conduct a general program that makes a reasonable effort to remove the names of ineligible voters by reason of death or change of address. Dirty voter rolls matter, and Judicial Watch continues to do astonishing work. The 2018 Supreme Court decision reaffirmed the 2014 Judicial Watch settlement agreement with Ohio forcing the state to clean up their voter rolls. Ohio had to follow the law and send address confirmation notices to registered voters. The Judicial Watch lawsuit with Colorado charges, quote, an ongoing systemic problem with Colorado's voter list maintenance obligations, end quote. Judicial Watch filed a lawsuit in North Carolina for the same reason and have successfully taken on Ohio, Kentucky and Indiana as well. And so if you've listened to the podcast for a while, you'll know that I have talked consistently about the voter registries because that is where they are able to create a massive supply of potentially fraudulent votes that they can then insert into elections. And this is why I talk about the George Soros election fraud apparatus. If you're familiar with the work that Bobby Python has done and Dr. Frank has done and others, they have been going through these voter registries. Seth Keschel has also done a lot of work on the anomalies with voter registrations and the results that were produced, particularly in 2020. And this is exactly why the Department of Justice last year in early May sent a letter down to Maricopa County attempting to ensure that a canvas of Maricopa County could not be included in the audit because when a proper canvas is done, they find the results like I had mentioned in Pima County earlier, and they're able to expose all of these illegitimate registries. This is why Steve Bannon consistently says it's the canvas, not the count because this is the sort of thing. This is the key that unlocks the entire election fraud apparatus. And it should be no surprise to anyone that George Soros's Open Society Foundation and all of those other liberal groups like the Brennan Center are so deeply involved with this. You can see the system of election fraud, and it is a massive system. There is an entire apparatus in all sorts of different agencies to enable exactly the result that they achieved in the 2020 election. And it goes all the way up the ladder of corrupt and powerful individuals and organizations who are deciding for us who our representatives will be. And in the 2020 election, we have evidence of all of it. That's why it's so important to focus on fixing the 2020 election, because without that, there's no reason that anyone, anyone should have confidence in the integrity of our elections. And it's not just Democrats, by the way, this stuff exists in Republican states and it helps to elect rhino members of the Uniparty who just happen to have an R next to their name. Now, let's stick with Soros for just a second, boom segue, and go to Myanmar. Myanmar military arrests more journalists in media crackdown. This is from Reuters. Myanmar's military has arrested three people working for the independent news portal Dawei Watch, an editor at the publication said on Thursday. The latest detentions under a media crackdown that has occurred since last year's coup. And again, what they are calling a coup is Myanmar's military deposing an illegitimate leader associated with Obama, with the Clintons, and with George Soros. Mo Mient, a 35-year-old journalist and mother of three, was detained on Tuesday in Dawe, a city in southern Myanmar, said the editor, who asked not to be named due to the sensitivity of the issue. 
Another journalist, Ko Zaw, 38, and Thar Gyi, a 21-year-old web designer at the publication, were arrested on Wednesday. They are currently being held at a police station in Dawei, and the reason for their arrest is still unknown, said the editor, who called for them to be released immediately. A spokesman for the ruling military junta did not respond to a request for comment. The junta has previously said it respected the role of the media, but would not allow reporting it deemed false or likely to cause public unrest. The military has rescinded media licenses, imposed curbs on Internet and satellite broadcasts, and arrested dozens of journalists since its February 1st coup. Myanmar ranked as the world's second worst jailer of journalists in a report published by the Committee to Protect Journalists. Reporting ASEAN, a Southeast Asia media advocacy group, said since the coup, 115 journalists had been detained and 44 remained in detention and three had died. Some foreign journalists have also been detained, including American journalist Danny Fenster, who was the managing editor of independent online magazine Frontier Myanmar. Fenster was sentenced to 11 years in prison last November for incitement and violations of laws on immigration and unlawful assembly before being released following negotiations between former U.S. diplomat Bill Richardson and the junta. And you might remember Bill Richardson as the former governor of New Mexico who ran for president a couple of times. And Richardson has an interesting history of alleged corruption. This is actually from Wikipedia. I'm surprised they haven't eliminated this page. According to his autobiography, then United Nations Ambassador Bill Richardson was asked by the White House in 1997 to interview Monica Lewinsky for a job on his staff at the United Nations. Richardson did so and later offered her a position which she declined. The American Spectator alleged that Richardson knew more about the Clinton Lewinsky scandal than he declared to the grand jury. In 2011, Richardson was under investigation for his role in alleged campaign finance violations. A former member of Richardson's campaign claimed that during Richardson's 2008 presidential campaign, Richardson and members of his campaign paid an unknown woman $250,000 to keep her from exposing an alleged affair they had in 2004. During the 2012 trial, United States of America versus Carollo, Goldberg and Grimm, the former CDR employee, Doug Goldberg, testified that he was involved in giving Bill Richardson campaign contributions amounting to $100,000 in exchange for his company, CDR, being hired to handle a $400 million swap deal for the New Mexico state government. During his testimony, Doug Goldberg stated that he had been given an envelope containing a check for $25,000 payable to Moving America Forward, Bill Richardson's political action committee, by his boss, Stuart Walmark, and told to deliver it to Bill Richardson at a fundraiser. When Goldberg handed the envelope to Richardson, he allegedly told Goldberg to, quote, tell the big guy, that's Walmark, I'm going to hire you guys. Goldberg went on to testify that CDR was hired, but that he later learned that another firm was hired by Richardson to perform the actual work required and that Stuart Walmark had given Richardson a further $75,000 in contributions. In 2019, it was revealed that Richardson was among those named in court documents from a civil suit between Virginia Roberts Jeffrey and Jeffrey Epstein associate Ghislaine Maxwell. The documents were unsealed on August 9th, 2019, a day before Epstein's suicide. Jeffrey alleged that she was sexually trafficked by Epstein and Maxwell to serve high profile individuals, including Richardson, while she was underage in the early 2000s. A spokesperson for Richardson denied the claims, stating that he did not know Jeffrey and had never seen Epstein in the presence of young or underage girls. Richardson released a statement in August 2019 saying that he had offered his assistance in the investigation of Epstein to the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Richardson's attorney, Jeff Brown of Detchert LLP, later said he was informed by the assistant U.S. attorney that Richardson is neither a target, subject, nor witness in the case, and that there is no allegation against Richardson that the government is actively investigating. And isn't it interesting that this man, with a history of corruption involved with Epstein and Maxwell was able to go over to Myanmar and privately secure the release of this American journalist 
who was sentenced to 11 years in prison by the military that had recently deposed the illegitimate government put in place by George Soros's election apparatus. And you have to take note of how these mainstream propaganda outlets will refer to this situation. Now, imagine a year ago if Donald Trump had used the military to keep himself in office, okay, which by right and by law he could have done. He determined that that was not the best path forward. And maybe other people made that determination with him. And we're going to see how this all progresses. And I expect we're going to have a good result. But imagine how our media would have attempted to cover that and how the world's media at that point would have attempted to cover that. They would say that Donald Trump had staged a military coup. They would complain that people were being jailed, even though they had literally committed treason against the country. And we could imagine that journalists would be among the people imprisoned. And we may well see that that will happen in the future because so many members of our mainstream press are directly tied to that treason. And so you have to look at the Myanmar situation in that context. Now, Bill Richardson is clearly tied to the power players in this system. Why was he the one over there trying to secure the release of an American journalist? It's odd, isn't it, that these media organizations will lay out all the facts you need to actually put together what's going on, and they will intentionally mislead about what the conclusion should be. And let's continue on the subject of global communist corruption. This is a letter from Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson, both Republican senators. This is from Tuesday, and it's addressed to the director of the U.S. Secret Service, James Murray. Dear Director Murray, we write to you today regarding U.S. Secret Service records involving Hunter Biden and his use of government-sponsored travel while he conducted private business. We previously requested that the U.S. Secret Service provide all records among and between U.S. Secret Service, Hunter Biden, Katie Dodge, or Joan Mayer regarding Hunter Biden's travel while his father was vice president. To date, the Secret Service has produced 259 pages of documents pursuant to our requests. However, we have serious concerns about the production. First, the Secret Service's production contains extensive Freedom of Information Act redactions, which do not apply to Congress and should not be applied to this production. These inappropriate redactions impede our office's ability to understand the full scope of the interactions between Hunter Biden, his associates, and the Secret Service. For example, in applying the redactions, the Secret Service hid names and other information contained in email conversations regarding Hunter Biden without any proper legal justification. Specifically, in a May 23, 2014 email chain, a redacted individual on then Vice President Biden's detail emailed a redacted individual at Hunter Biden's business, Rosemont Seneca Partners, about Hunter Biden's upcoming travel plans to travel from Paris, France to Kazakhstan. The vice president's detail asked the individual at Rosemont Seneca Partners, quote, if there will be room on the private flight for at least redacted of our guys, preferably redacted, we would greatly appreciate it. The U.S. Secret Service records that we previously made public show that Hunter Biden was in Paris, France from May 29th, 2014 to June 7th, 2014, while a protectee. The U.S. Secret Service records do not show whether Secret Service personnel or Hunter Biden traveled to Kazakhstan in May or June 2014. Second, we determined that even though Hunter Biden was a Secret Service protectee from January 2009 through July 2014, the Secret Service did not produce any communications regarding Hunter Biden's travel for the years 2010, 2011 and 2013. The Secret Service's lack of communications during these years raises questions, given that Secret Service travel records show that Hunter Biden made trips to China and other destinations around the world, including Russia, Italy, Spain, and Mexico. In order to better understand the Secret Service's communications with Hunter Biden and his associates while his father served as vice president, we respectfully request the following information. Unredacted copies of the attached 259 pages of documents 
and those redacted documents are attached to the letter. Two, an explanation for why the Secret Service did not provide any communication records for the years of 2010, 2011, and 2013. Please provide this information as soon as possible, but no later than January 26th, 2022. So that's in five days. And I would guess with how things have been going within the illegitimate administration and the massive focus on covering all of this sort of thing up, that we will not see those documents from the Secret Service handed over unredacted to the senators. All sorts of executive branch agencies in the illegitimate regime have been simply ignoring Congress's requests for documents and information that they need for proper oversight. Kind of amazing considering that the illegitimate Biden administration is the most transparent administration in history, at least according to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and Jen Psaki and people like that. But the Hunter Biden stuff is moving forward. And within the next few weeks, I imagine we will see the full report on all the crimes from the laptop from hell that will be produced by my friend Garrett Ziegler. We also have this yesterday from Fox News. Hunter Biden and former Biden aide invested in Chinese company tied to Communist Party NBA China. This is Cameron Cawthorn writing for Fox News. As recently as March 2017, Hunter Biden's private equity firm held a stake in a company run by a Chinese executive with ties to officials at some of the highest levels of the Communist Party of China, according to emails reviewed by Fox Business. Hunter Biden's longtime business partner, Eric Schwerin, sent him an email in March 2017, breaking down the ownership interests of Rosemont Seneca Advisors, which included a 5% stake in Harvest Amusement Parks and ownership in Harvest Sports and Entertainment. Biden's introduction to the Harvest Group came about two years earlier when Francis Person, who served as an advisor to then Vice President Biden from 2009 to 2014 and was a special assistant to Biden in the Senate, sent an email to Hunter Biden in July 2015, inviting him to China the following month to meet his business partner, Bo Zhang, and his family. Bo Zhang and his family would host us. They are a great family with great respect and relationships in China. Bo graduated from American University and is in his late 20s, and his parents own Harvest Century Group of Shenyang, which is a top-tier private Chinese real estate development firm. His mom is actually the chairman of the company, which is unique in China. They are very private and wouldn't tell anyone about you coming. Bo's father-in-law is actually the governor of Hainan, which he doesn't advertise at all. So that's the email. Harvest Century Group, which has backing from the state-owned China Development Bank, is headquartered in Shenyang, China, and is the parent company of multiple U.S.-based Harvest affiliates, including Harvest Investment Group, Harvest Global Entertainment, and Harvest Sports. Harvest Century's website says the chairwoman is Zhenglan Xiao, which is revealed to be Zhang's mother, according to Person's 2015 email to Hunter Biden. It is unclear what her background is or whether she's an American citizen, but her name comes up on the Federal Election Commission website as a maxed out donor to Person's failed 2016 campaign against then Representative Mick Mulvaney, Republican from South Carolina. Zhang also was a maxed out donor to Person's campaign. Schwerin and Hunter Biden both donated $2,700. Person's email went on to say that Zhang is being groomed to take over his family's dynasty and that the trip wasn't about selling Biden on anything, but more about growing that relationship, adding that there will be plenty of big things that come down the road that we can work on. Person added that Harvest was partnering with NBA stars Magic Johnson and LeBron James in 2016 to host an NBA global game in China. Isn't that great? I guess that's why. LeBron James was so opposed to Daryl Morey, who was the general manager of the Houston Rockets, speaking out in favor of the protesters in Hong Kong. LeBron James, great guy. The longtime Biden aide who traveled with Vice President Biden to 49 of the 50 countries he visited through mid-2014, including China, and was described by then Second Lady Jill Biden as, quote, like a son to Joe and me, and someone who, quote, will always be part of our family, was tapped to be the president of Harvest 
in June 2015, less than six months after he left the White House. According to LinkedIn, person, quote, helped guide the formation of Harvest Group, headquartered in Washington, D.C., serving as the U.S. affiliate of Harvest Century Group. It does not appear that Biden was able to make the China trip during the specific week that person pitched in the email, but multiple emails reviewed by Fox Business show that person and Zhang met with Biden and Schwerin in Washington on multiple occasions and emailed back and forth, coordinating potential harvest-related business deals. In one 2016 email, Biden calls Zhang his good friend and business colleague. One of the names CC'd on the email was James Bulger, who appeared to help Biden get a Chinese business license for his uncle's telemedicine company a couple of years later. How helpful. One of the emails was from Schwerin to Zhang, Biden, person, and assistant, and Tara Greco a former director of communications for the union that represents NBA players. The April 2016 email, which was directed at Zhang, said Greco had learned that the Anschutz Entertainment Group, AEG, had a deal with the NBA to, quote, build NBA-branded stadiums around China, end quote, but said it appeared that the project was stalled after only two stadiums were built, prompting Schwerin to say, quote, if Liaoning can get one of these stadiums. That would be a big help in your efforts to get more NBA related content in Liaoning. After listing off several questions he had for Zhang, Schwerin concluded the email by saying they could discuss when they met the following week. In November 2020, a joint press release announced that Harvest was partnering with NBA China, a company that was formed in 2008 to conduct the NBA's business throughout China and develop NBA themed entertainment centers. Zhang was quoted in the press release as saying the centers, quote, further our mission to provide best in class global entertainment experiences to local populations, end quote. In May of this year, the eastern city of Suzhou is expected to open its first experience center. Zhang said, we hope to grow it into a landmark project in the sports industry. As part of the partnership, Harvest plans to open six NBA-themed entertainment centers across China, with the first opening by 2022, the press release said. These entertainment centers will bring together fans and families to experience the excitement of the NBA through a variety of new activities and offerings, including cutting-edge, interactive digital games, NBA-themed dining, and more. In addition to being the co-founder and CEO of Harvest Global Entertainment, Person is the co-founder and CEO of DreamCube Innovations, a company that Fast Company described as an enticing new technology and brand that's already signed deals with the NBA, as well as with the Manchester United Soccer Club that is set up across China. It's humbling to work with incredibly creative, talented, and passionate people to push technology and immersive experiences to another level, Person wrote on his Facebook, sharing the Fast Company article. We are living through tough times, but our future is lined with infinite possibilities. Fox Business reached out to Person and Zhang to inquire about the relationship between Harvest and the Chinese government and whether they have played a role in approving any of their business contracts, along with a series of other questions, but neither of them responded. In person's 2015 email to Hunter Biden, he revealed that Zhang's father-in-law was the governor of Hainan at the time. A timeline shows that Liu Sigui, I think, was the governor in 2015. And according to the diplomat, Sigui was considered to be a Xi loyalist. Sigui went straight to public service at the age of 20, going, quote, through levels of Chinese Communist Party organs in Fujian, first via the Communist Youth League, and then as spatial party secretaries, eventually of prefecture level Putian, a coastal city of two million along the Xiamen, Quanzu, Putian, Fuzhou coastal axis, the diplomat reported. According to China Vitae, Sigui has been a member of the CCP Central Committee, which is the party's, quote, highest organ of authority, end quote, since 2012. Additionally, Liu was a member of the Central Commission for Discipline Inspection from 2012 to 2017, which, according to The Washington Post, is, quote, a secretive, powerful agency in charge of investigating the Communist Party's own members for corruption and was, quote, the main weapon in Xi Jinping's rapid consolidation of power as China's new leader. Another tie that Zhang has to the CCP was revealed in a December 2013 Foreign Agents Registration Act, that's a FARA filing, with the Justice Department, listing Zhang as the foreign principal. Although the foreign principal is a private individual because of his relationship with a Chinese government official, Liu Guoqiang, 
a vice chairman Liaoning committee of the Chinese People's Political Conservative Conference, People's Republic of China. The foreign principal proposes to seek assistance from the registrant to provide congressional outreach on behalf of the vice chairman in relation to setting up meetings with congressional officials when the vice chairman and his delegation visit the United States, which is expected to occur in 2014. The filing reads. According to the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission, the CPPCC is a critical coordinating body that brings together representatives of China's other interest groups and is led by a member of China's highest-level decision-making authority, the CCP's Politburo Standing Committee. The diplomat reports that the CPPCC is a key part of China's united front work and that it is designed to liaise with non-communist party members and ultimately see them work with the CCP to advance its interests and target prominent figures like athletes, business people and politicians. Hunter Biden's attorney in Schwerin did not respond to a series of questions or say whether Hunter still had stake in Harvest. So once again, we have a woke American corporation, the NBA, happy to do China's bidding culturally in return for vast sums of money that they are able to amass because the deals are coordinated by corrupt Americans who are happy to sell out their country for Chinese Communist Party money. This is the Biden family business, and it always has been. And I know people believe that no one will ever be held accountable. And these things progress slowly, but they are progressing. Now, there was an interesting development today regarding Biden's disastrous press conference and the effects that had on the situation with Ukraine. This is from Reuters. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz turned down an invite at short notice from U.S. President Joe Biden to discuss the Ukraine crisis, German magazine Der Spiegel said on Friday. Scholz did not accept the request due to a full schedule, including a trip to Madrid, as well as the desire to show that he was present as Germany grapples with the COVID-19 pandemic, according to Der Spiegel. A government spokesman declined to comment on the report. Both sides now hope to organize a meeting by mid-February. So the German chancellor declined to discuss the Ukraine situation with the very, very legitimate American president, the most popular president in American history. In fact, the excuse is that he has a trip and he wants to make sure that he's present for the covid response. Obviously, both of those excuses are nonsense. And this speaks to what I mentioned yesterday. Joe Biden is unable to fulfill the role he was selected and placed in office to fulfill. And he is now being pushed aside by other members of the Build Back Better globalist world order community. Countries in Europe are trying to push forward with the wag the dog effort in Ukraine and Joe Biden is being sidelined. So today, the illegitimate administration announced and notified Congress that they would be sending MI-17 helicopters over to Ukraine. That is the big, bold move that says, hey, the U.S., we still want to wag the dog with you guys. Don't leave out the fake president. He wants to be right on board. He's just as aggressive, just as decisive and just as committed to this massive distraction as you guys are. Now, we got some great news out of Texas today. And by that, I mean more bad news for the illegitimate president and his vaccine mandates. As Judge Jeffrey Vincent Brown in the United States District Court for the Southern District of Texas has blocked Biden's vaccine mandate on federal workers. And he writes in his decision, the plaintiffs have moved the court to preliminarily enjoin the enforcement of two executive orders by the president. The first executive order 14042 is already the subject of a nationwide injunction because that injunction protects the plaintiffs from imminent harm. The court declines to enjoin the first order. The second 
Executive Order 14043 amounts to a presidential mandate that all federal employees consent to vaccination against COVID-19 or lose their jobs. Because the president's authority is not that broad, the court will enjoin the second order's enforcement. The court notes at the outset that this case is not about whether folks should get vaccinated against COVID-19. The court believes they should. It is not even about the federal government's power exercised properly to mandate vaccination of its employees. It is instead about whether the president can, with the stroke of a pen and without the input of Congress, require millions of federal employees to undergo a medical procedure as a condition of their employment. That, under the current state of the law, as just recently expressed by the Supreme Court, is a bridge too far. Now, obviously, this is great news for federal employees, but it's also great news for the country at large because people are realizing that what the Biden administration is attempting to do is not legal. And all of those people out there who listened to the television and went and got themselves injected with an experimental gene therapy and now want to make sure that everyone else has to endure the same fate they're scared of facing are not going to get their way. They want to force everyone to comply with what they want. And that's not going to happen. And the mass vaccination campaign seems to be dying before our eyes. So is the COVID narrative around the world. Ireland just released all of their COVID restrictions. The UK's COVID restrictions are being taken down. The entire thing is falling apart. That's it for today, guys. Please keep sharing the show. The info stream, my social medias, the Substack, the merch site, the donation and support site, those are all listed in the show notes on your podcast app. And I will be back on Monday. Same reasonable time, same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting, or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct to that at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time out on the range. Moderator for tonight's broadcast. It's high noon. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. 
If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!